Good morning. I hope you guys are doing well. Welcome to the Metanoia Religious Trauma Podcast. I am excited to have you guys. If you're new, um, thank you. And if you're um, if you've been, you know, listening to all of my other um, study tapes, uh, I definitely appreciate it. And I do hope that they're helpful to you and um, not helpful in the way where I'm necessarily telling you what to believe, but just the stretching of the mind, the stretching of our thinking and the capacity that we have to um, understand and interpret the world. And, and I hope that that expands for us as we go. Um, today, we are going to talk about a few things and it'll be sexual abuse. And so we're going to kind of contextualize the sexual abuse. So I'm going to come from a specific perspective, um, something that's personal and that I relate with. And that is that, um, you know, sexual abuse is... Uh, let's just say someone has, as an example, sexual abuse, uh, it happens to them in their childhood, um, how that might affect them. And then when you integrate religion with uh, the trauma of sexual abuse, you know, that that's also interesting um, how some of the structures of thinking that come from being abused, you know, uh, we know for a fact that uh, when you, especially at a young age in um especially like school age, you know, and then, you know, most of the sexual abuse uh, happens between seven and 13. Um, that's a statistic from victims of crime.org. And um, so when we talk about it, we'll just talk about the most prominent part of life that this does happen and the most common time in life that it happens. And, and you know, there's research also that uh, between six and 17, so that will determine a lot of who somebody will be. You know, between those ages, that's what that's what uh, a child, a teenager is most influenced between those age ages as far as like who they'll be as an adult. Now, obviously, there's some younger than that still. They're still like, you know, they're still impressionable at a younger age, but it's a different kind of impression. Each as they grow, um, a person is affected differently, you know, by things um, depending on how uh, they've developed. So this is not accurate, per se, to the point where. Um, you can say every person, it's just averaged out and then it kind of creates a spectrum. And so we once we have a spectrum, we can at least um, have some kind of baseline to work from on helping people deal with sexual abuse. So um, for me personally, I was abused as a kid and I've been abused a number of times in different ways. So uh, the multiplicity of abuse that I've been through um, doesn't um, can't be talked about in entirely in this uh, specific a tape today, but nonetheless, I'm going to do my best. And so I kind of been running into some working thoughts here. And um, I'll just kind of give this as an intro. Um, um, I kind of call this the undeserving cycle. And what this means is um, there's a cycle, right? And the cycle is if I were to draw it out, I think that's the best way I can understand it, is um, it's an undeserving cycle. So it's, um, I think undeserving, I feel undeserving, then I act undeserving, and then it stimulates me back to thinking. So then I act, I have to think about what I did, and what perpetuates this is either guilt or I would say wisdom, 
on a positive side. So guilt, maybe in shame, that'd be a negative. <clears throat> we can look at that as a negative. Um, usually cycles um, seem to be fueled by uh, kind of contrary aspects of things sometimes where like something is the opposite and something is what it is and it kind of perpetuates. And so like in this case, it's like, I'll give you an example. Um, well, maybe that's not the best way to see it. I'm just thinking out loud here because I'm like, you. if you think a certain way, you start to feel a certain way. If you feel a certain way, you start to act a certain way. When you act a certain way, you go back to thinking. And so there's a Proverbs, okay, it's 23, 7, and it's in the Bible. Um, if you're not a believer, hopefully this is helpful. Um, but uh, it's actually a phrase that kind of kind of jumps through religions a little bit. And it's to say that uh, as a man thinks, he becomes, right? So there's a lot of stuff out there that says as a man thinks, he becomes, Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks in his heart, he becomes. Uh, so is he. The phrasing is, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. So you see, thinking, feeling, acting, all are the pattern of behavior. So now you can insert, you can insert anything into this. And it could be positive or it could be negative, right? And if you insert uh, a negative thought, You'll feel negative, you'll act negative, you'll act in that way that kind of um, puts you back. It's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy because we use words to communicate, right? But words, um, I was thinking about this yesterday, like you can trust everybody's words and you might not think so. So you have words and then you have actions, okay? And just think about, think about a highway, right? You have a highway, you have a center divide, and then you have, you know, cars going both ways, right? So one's going in one direction, let's just say south, and one's going in the other direction, saying north. Just as an example. So we're going to use um, words and actions as our guardrails to help interpret um, <clears throat> a person. So it's also our responsibility to grow our and nurture our own emotional intelligence, our empathy, our self-awareness, our ability to see and understand other people for who and what they say they are uh, for reals, right? Versus what uh, we might think they are. So we might have a projection of, of what we think they are based on um, some actions we've seen about a person. And then we might also have a perception uh, based on the words. So we see we need, we need actions and words as baselines. So the words are always true. And the actions are always true. I think what people get mistaken and say, well, they, they, oftentimes people say, well, you, well, I don't trust you and I don't trust your words. And it's like, well, the problem is, is that a person will always tell the truth, even if they're lying, even if they're lying. The, the problem here is not whether or not is what they're saying is true. It's just what's true is how you understand words and actions together. Okay. Because that creates our boundaries of understanding a person. You can only understand a person to the extent that you understand um, how what they say and do fits between um, their words and actions. How that actually fits. And then anything on the side, that's kind of where you can find, okay, well, that's the problems. That's the issues this person has, right? Because uh, some of their words are going to meet their actions and some are not. But it doesn't mean the ones that are not aren't true. It means the ones that are that we interpret as not true. 
we are not seeing them within the confines of their personality in totality. So um, I'll give you an example. If you often, if you know someone and they often are shortcutting, right, in small things, um, and then they tell you and they tell a lot of big promises, okay, the big promises may literally be true to that person in that moment. But in comparison to their nature, um, if you've paid attention to them enough, you'll notice that when they are when they're acting shady, what they're acting shady about, and then the promises, if they correlate with with what's with what they're usually shady about, you can often understand, okay, and make a better decision on whether or not you want to integrate your life with that person. So we need words and actions, both of them, to actually understand each other because you can't just dismiss words because you believe they're literally untrue. You need the words, so don't dismiss them so that you can actually have a better way of interpreting, understanding people. Now, going back to Proverbs 23, 7, it says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Okay, so the thoughts become feelings. And, and when it becomes feelings, it, become, it can become feelings and words, right? So words are a manifestation into the actual world of what we think, but it's not always the definition of what we say. So we can have a definition. There's maybe a literal definition of what somebody says, but the intention can definitely affect that. And then the, the actions that one does can affect that as well. So we take that into consideration and that's how we would want to understand a person. You don't want to understand them just based off actions and you don't want to understand them just based off words. It's something that I think needs to be in integrated. And so we get into this cycle as well. So let's talk about the undeserving cycle. And the undeserving cycle fits is that if I think undeserving, okay, if I'm having undeserving thoughts, I'm not worthy. Uh, Brene Brown has done a lot of research on this. Uh, she's a, um, a, I don't know, I think just a, a great researcher and has a lot of good work. And she talks about how um, people who actually believe that they are undeserving will will act in a way that demonstrates that they are undeserving. So they'll do things to make themselves undeserving. So if I have undeserving thoughts, then I have undeserving feelings. And if I have undeserving feelings, then I have I'm going to have undeserving actions that self fulfill how I think about myself and what I am worthy of and what I'm not worthy of. Okay, now. The problem is, is how is this undeserving created? And that's kind of what we're talking today about, like sexual abuse. Um, and I think it's important to understand is that uh, oftentimes people who are abused will have uh, a complex of low self-esteem, worthlessness, um, not feeling that they're worthy of protection, not worth anyone's best. Um, they'll have a distorted view of sex. They'll... Um, you know, and then males are even five times more likely to have issues regarding like sexual issues with within their relationship. And so you can get some of this stuff and in, in, um, some of this understanding at victimsofcrime.org. Um, but I'm going to quote some statistics real quick. So, you know, um, about nine out of 100 people or children um, experience sexual assault. And so you think about nine out of 100 children will experience some kind of sexual uh, uh, trauma. And you get even to these other numbers where it's like, well, most of this happens between, um, you know, the, a lot of uh, stuff, of the, uh, 
some of the most imp- impactful abuse happens between seven and 13. Um, and then school age is around six to 17. So then you see that right there in, in that in that education state, right, where the, the where a child is primarily what they think their role is in the world is to learn. Right. Because we teach them that. So imagine that just being in a learning state and then also having a traumatic event. It's almost like it's going to teach you something, whether it's conscious or unconscious, and it's going to affect how you behave in the world. And if it affects how uh, you behave in the world, then it's going to determine a lot of who you'll be. And so if you have a complex of low self-worth, which happens to be a byproduct of sexual abuse, you're going to be you're going to have a very hard time finding your place. So when you get into something like Christianity, where um, let's just say there's versions of and denominations of Christianity that actually have a lot more rules and regulations. And this isn't to knock them, but someone who has the sexual abuse as a trauma, as an experience that is negative in their life, will have the propensity to actually try to work for their salvation. And they'll try to work to earn their their rightness with God when, you know, in the Bible, the New Testament, of course, um, and the New Testament is just is, is just what they preached out of the Old Testament. That's the simplest way I can put it. And so when you read what's in the New Testament, it's just a reference. It's a self-reference to the Old Testament and how um, the Old Testament connects, um, you know, and how the, the, the church starts and all of those fine details. But nonetheless, it's uh, Christianity is a religion of legal justification, meaning that I went to I go to court and and when I go to court, they 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 set me free on the basis that someone else paid. So it's like double jeopardy. You know, if you don't know the law of double jeopardy, it's you can't pay for the same crime twice. And so if Jesus paid, I can't pay. But the problem with uh, sexual assault victims and sexual abuse victims is they will like to earn their way. They want to feel good about themselves because they already naturally feel worthless. They don't feel worthy. They don't. It's it's an undeserving cycle of thinking and it could also affect them chemically, right? So we're talking about uh, 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 give them stress or or, or, or um, make them feel unmotivated, like things like that. And then that kind of affects your, your body and that affects your brain. There's some parts of the brain that actually when you experience trauma, they actually can receive nerve damage as a result of actual uh, an actual situation so that you are um, biologically affected as well. So then... Imagine, imagine you having um, like your hormones just kind of in a set place and then a trauma happens and it disrupts the hormones, right? And then what, whatever that disruption is, it could actually send you into some kind of high. This is just from personal experience. It sends you to some kind of high where then once you come down off of that, it's, it, it's a hard crash and you don't feel good about yourself for all the things you did on that high. But in all the actions you took and you're, you're completely aware of yourself to the point of like, man, what did I do? And, and, and that's kind of what, what the abuse was, is that you, you felt like, what did I do to deserve this? And then you can't justify it. And so there's just chaos, right? So what understanding this does is helps us, um, this little cycle here, as a man thinketh, is that it helps us understand that somebody, um, that there's hope, number one, that it, it can be worked through. But number two, that... Um, when you bring people like who convert into Christianity and they have sexual trauma, this is something that should be um, 
um, taken, especially when someone admits it or kind of, um, you know, speaks on it, like if it's in a testimony sense, right, within a church context, is it something that should be taken serious? I remember when I was younger, I, I told someone, you know, about my trauma, like a group of people, like kind of among a bonfire, and they were mostly adults. And one of the per- persons said, you know, you don't, you don't say this kind of stuff. Like they discouraged me from like, you know, talking about it. And so, um, you know, that created a complex in me. Well, I'm going to prove you wrong and I'm going to be the best Christian in the world, you know, like that kind of stuff. And it came from this real weird place of, of not sure if it's a good or bad intention, but nonetheless, what that person said affected me. So that, that person um, created a religious environment where I wasn't able to speak on my situation and because it might have made them feel uncomfortable. And for whatever reason that is, I don't know, but, you know, we can, you can only speculate that, but nonetheless, it affected me negatively. And so as I'm going through some of my notes here, um, you're going to find um, that there's behaviors that some of the, some of these people exu- ex- exhibit. Um, and some of those behaviors are um, there are like some things like that some might one might be prone to is like, um, let's see. They, they're, they're uncommittal, right? They're noncommittal, like they're not sure that they're good enough so they won't commit. So you'll have sometimes people with, uh, they'll love to help, but they won't commit, you know. Um, they'll have, they won't have the ability to love according to um, the religion, how the religion says one should love. Um, they won't be able to do that. They'll have a, too much self-hate for that to happen. Um, they'll have a willingness to compromise their relationships, you know what I mean? Like cutting them short and, and kind of without explanation. Um, they'll have a dark empathy sometimes where it's the most dangerous actually, where it's like they have the ability to empathize with other people, but also um, it's, it's used for manipulation. It's not used to actually, you know, help the people. Um, that would need sexual acceptance. So they'll be looking for validation sexually even in a religious context. And it's not necessarily all the time where it's just this pure lustful thing, but it, it's, uh, it could be a triggered thing where somebody kind of goes a little bit black and then gets into a very sexual kind of seducing nature. And that seducing nature um, can show itself sometimes. And then in turn, you know, they, they uh, would, within the context of Christianity, they would fornicate or they would participate in uh, sexual acts um, before being married, you know, so uh, that could happen as well. And they're extremely either extremely open or extremely close. You're going to they might have some other addictions, some ways of coping, maybe like drinking on the low or or smoking on the low or um, doing certain things on the low. You know what I mean? They could easily uh, be involved in uh, like sadism, which is kind of like a need to be a judge or masochism where they feel the need to be punished um, because maybe they deserved it. So when, when you get into this stuff too, because I know I'm going to do, I'm going to try to do a podcast that talks about some of, some of the, um, some of these sexual uh, things that are problems within, that, that either are created by religion or religious mindsets. It doesn't mean necessarily that the person belonged to any religion, but religion can still impact you and affect you because religion is very simple. Religion is the structure of, of, of laws and rules and according, and the challenge for us is to live according to those standards and rules. And so people do this to themselves all the time where they create their own religion, where they have their own you know, set of values and they try to live up to them the best they can and, 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 and to be right with self. And um, 
you don't have to have God necessarily to actually be religious, to actually have a negative uh, uh, structure of religion within your within your mind. And so I kind of was thinking like maybe religiousness is or legalism, the measuring of, of, of good is our nature in a sense. It's part of our human nature. It's probably the bad part where uh, we kind of um, try to climb this uh, ladder to some ethereal place and um, where we're somehow going to judge ourselves worthy of 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 good for what we've done and that leads to disaster because um there's no there's no self there's no self-justification you can't exonerate yourself um um you can try to with like your your mental ascent you can ascend mentally to a place where you exonerate yourself from the bad you've done and that would be interesting for you i don't know what that would 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 come out to but within this with with what i'm talking about right now it's like if you're sexually abused you're going to have a undeserving complex. That undeserving complex can uh, affect how you see God, even though maybe there's different kind of there's a different truth about God than what than how you're seeing Him. You know, is that God is graceful, and then you're legalistic, and so you're legalistic because you're trying to find your worth, you're trying to find validation. So you do actions, good actions, um, to 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 find your worth, and then. Uh, you try to avoid bad ones to find your worth. And then when you do mess up, you self-validate that you are worthless, you know. And you got to think about it. Every 68 seconds, someone is sexually assaulted. Every nine minutes, a child is, becomes another victim. You know. And these people, every 68 seconds, can develop really severe drug issues, uh, 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 Cocaine, they're more likely to use cocaine. They're more likely to, you know, commit suicide. They're one out of three children will have school problems that has uh, that is a victim of sexual abuse. And it's 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 just. It becomes something that really affects how somebody is able to live in the world, you know, and even. Um, there's a dis there's a there's a disorder called uh dissociated identity disorder. And that actually is a disorder that could be developed from sexual abuse where a person um, has to separate um, parts of themselves, right? And, par and they separate themselves into parts. Well, this is the part that was molested, the vulnerable part, which I'll never show again. And maybe that's the child in you, right? Maybe that's, the, that's where the childlike faith comes from. So you're, un you're unable to have childlike faith. And then maybe you create this other personality that's tough, so that it's like able to fight off, like no, I, I, I'm I'm strong, despite, you know, this part of me feeling weak, and then there's other parts where it's like, you know, the, the the part of you that's angry all the time, the part of you that's sad all the time, the part of you that uh, uh, blames yourself. You know, there's aspects of yourself that you can actually begin to separate and and disassociate yourself from the person that was molested in you, and you almost create multiple personalities. And, and this can happen. And if you're, imagine that, imagine that someone's in church and they're literally just trying to live for God and they come and they have sexual abuse as, as their background and as their history. And then they're super defensive and they're super, um, they have all these low key addictions. So there's going to be all this low key shame and in, 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 uh, they have, they don't think, you know, they were worthy of, of anything good. And I can, relate with personal experiences that when that when you're when you're um when you when you go through something like a molestation or, or abuse or sexual assault or anything like that 
it it can definitely um, make you feel like, well, why weren't my parents there to protect me? Was I not worthy of their protection? Was I not worthy of their attentiveness and love enough to spare me from something like that? Because it's it's preventable. It was a lot of what happened to me was preventable, but it, or making space for me to talk about it or, or, or double checking on me that when I went to babysitter that when I came when I came back and like saying, well, how was it? Um, what happened? And, and, and kind of digging into it. It's like no one cared about me, you know, and so I get into church and it's like, you know, I got all these people caring about me. It, it's almost like uh, what? What about me makes you care? Because I don't see anything in me, you know, and, and, and then. It's like you make people liars in your own mind and you can't trust them. And then you start you start developing your own complex about who you are. And it's completely different in, than what other people. Um, it's just completely different. And you kind of get stuck. I, I don't know how else to put it is that until you deal with this trauma and until it's uh, and, and maybe maybe churches have some responsibility considering the you know the 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 spiritual claim of actually having god and and that god wants to heal and help and and be there it's like churches should actually then have some kind of inclination to be helpful to people who go through this and should make some kind of program or some kind of uh uh, uh generalized help in a sense not that they are resp- completely responsible for someone's trauma but at the same time Christianity, Christians do make themselves responsible for other people's problems in the sense that it is our job as Christians to love others, you know? So it is, God gives us the responsibility of helping our brother and sister um, navigate this. And you may not have the words, but um, I, I always kind of get a little frustrated with this. Is it is it who is doing willful, volitional work to help this kind of thing? You know, who has decided to do that? And uh, um, and if more people decided to do that, I think definitely we would have a different experience because I think some of these people are the most dynamic people in church with uh, with this kind of past because, you know, the contrast, it's like you were way in this dark place and then, you know, you're in the light. And so that contrast creates, OK, like this person definitely like something special is going on. You know, you, you can tell the difference, you know, especially um, because, you know, Believing that God is a healer is like, well, God can heal that person and God can heal that person. But there's a standard of healing where it's like. Um, you still got to do your part in the sense that not to earn salvation, you have to do your part to to help your own mind get better, you know, or receive the healing. You have to at some point miraculously deem yourself worthy of God's healing and that faith in turn could trigger a miraculous healing Right. Or there could be the knowledge of God, which I think this is more plausible for me. This kind of healing is is I don't think emotional healing is always instantaneous. It's actually less instantaneous. It's more a process because you still have to live life. God understands that. So you have a lifetime to work through these issues. So if these are your life issues, then what will happen is you'll have what Paul called like a thorn in the flesh, like something that's constantly um, causing you problems and heartache. And God doesn't just remove those things sometimes, you know, like with Moses and, and, and the children of Israel, when they were murmuring and, you know, there was snakes, they were biting them. And then God didn't remove the snakes, but God uh, made them stronger. God strengthened them 
to overcome the snakes. They, he didn't remove the snakes. So God didn't remove the obstacle. So sometimes uh, the things that are, that, are, that are traumatic, God doesn't remove the memory and, and the concept. What God does is help you navigate becoming stronger. Having already been through this trauma, you get stronger because of the structure of uh, belief in God and he's on your side and he's for you and he's with you. That, those kind of, uh, of thoughts... Um, you start integrating them into your mental structure of how you think, right? You think and then you feel and then you act so that when you start thinking differently, that's what the Bible really does for people's minds, that the word speaks to the mind, to the thoughts. The thoughts are transformed. They're changed. It's what we call metamorpho or uh, transfigured, right? The thoughts are, transfer, uh, uh, are, are transformed to be more like how... Jesus would think. And as the mind becomes little by little transformed, you begin to feel little by little different and little by little you. And then we have to nurture this. This is not something that you just go through a two week course or uh, one week of counseling. It has to be nurtured, you know, so that person can um, develop a new way of thinking. You know, that's why it's a it's a there's the renewing of the mind. And that's not done by us. That's done by you know, God, if you're a believer, that's done by God. And, and we believe that if you believe the Bible, that's what you would believe is that it's God that's doing the work through his word. As you read it, your part is reading. Your part is faithing, like faithing and, and having faith in what is being said, that it's true and that it, it applies to you. And then therefore that creates a new structure of thinking. And that structure of thinking can be uh transformational because it will change how you act and show up in the world, right? So having said that, I think that's kind of where I've been going with some of this is like, I think this is important to understand that, you know, even if you're not of the Christian religion, um, God, from the, from the Christian standpoint, God does put it out there like the same thing that's put in a lot of religion is as a man thinks, so is he. As a man thinks, right? He becomes a man. And, and most philosophers and ancient um, uh, men who the society determines uh, as wise men worth remembering um, have said something similar to this. This is a constant and it's a constant through different religions. It's a constant through um, uh, even for a non-religious person is that's how human beings work. Now, this book, um, this proverb is not uh, a it's, we're not using this, let's just put it this way. It's not like um, scientific, right? This is not scientific and, and it's not referring to biology. And, 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 but at the same time, because this is not what the intent was. The intent was for, was for this to be wisdom. So this is wisdom about how to live and show up in the world. If you want to understand yourself, understand that what you think becomes what you feel and what you feel becomes who you are and how you act and show up in the world. So if you are, if you want to be different, but your thoughts are, are, are a complete disaster and your emotions are a complete disaster and you act, you have to start working on how you think. You have to maybe get a pen and pad and write the lining of how you make decisions and then from there, you're able to make better decisions, right? So um, stuff like I was kind of getting into um, getting into this because 
it's like, well, how does someone heal from this, right? We can use the the Proverbs 23 cycle, the, the, the thinking, the feeling, and the acting, right? And the acting out. And then there's also like, well, what that does is something interesting as well, because what it does is it takes chaos and it makes it ordered chaos. So that now, like, that's where a Christian would be able to, a believer would be able to take their tragedy reconstruct how they think about it through the Bible, through the words of God of how he would have you see this. Change how you feel, change how you act. Right. But the thing is, we're humans, so we're constantly moving. Right. There's this constant flow. It's like there's no we're not computational. So everything we do isn't like something that can be replicated through an algorithm. And since we're since we're non-computational that way, it's hard to predict what someone should actually do. Right. Uh, Because all situations are different, but it's the same process of taking chaos and making it ordered chaos. So that it's it's still it still needs to be chaotic in a way and but it needs to be organized and used for a purpose. And, And what that would be is like sharing your testimony with somebody or sharing your life story with somebody about what you overcame to be where you are today. And then that would be in turn taking the chaos and kind of making it orderly and useful versus just painful and hurtful to yourself, if that makes sense. And it's hard. So imagine someone's born religious and has this sexual trauma, right? It might even be they might even be more of um, they might even be more people pleasers. They might even be more addicted to validation that they're worth something. So they'll chase. And so some of these people can become highly successful. But then also they have a self-sabotaging nature where it's like they have to recreate the trauma. They have to recreate the principle of the trauma, which is I am not good enough. I have to make sure that I don't feel good enough. And it's not a conscious thing. It's a subconscious thing. You know, I even got into um, sadism and masochism in the sense of like studying it and learning it a little bit and what it is. And if you're not familiar with what these things are, it's just uh, masochism's more propensity of for wanting pain and humiliation for pleasure. And then sadism is more like you like to be the one inflicting pain. Um, it's kind of like a judge of sorts, right? So you, you see like, when, when, when relationships happen, you can easily have a person who likes pain, humiliation, and judgment. And then you have a person who likes to give the pain, humiliation, and judgment. And then that creates, that can create a really interesting dynamic um, um, towards people, towards each other, like relationship-wise. And so um, I'm not saying this comes from sexual trauma and religion fused together, but I was kind of looking this up and I noticed that, that some of the people who are advocates for um, a BDSM lifestyle or masochist or, or sadist lifestyle um, it, often find it to be very religious. You know, there's a lot of articles out there. You can find them if you look it up. Just be careful because when you're looking up these words, um, you don't want to necessarily run into like um, images and things like that because uh, these words um just use search like masochism definition or something like that. You know what I mean? I'm not trying to send you guys to some kind of weird site or nothing, but if you're looking this stuff up, but, um, and my goal here is to try to stay is, is, um, hearable as possible to all people. So I'm not, I'm not trying to go into so many details where it becomes like, okay, just, a, 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 a you know, 
something that I have to caution you guys about. So then like you even have these kind of these kind of behaviors um, and some of these people like have experienced sexual trauma who like these things. And and oftentimes uh, you can find that they're very religious concepts. You know, it's like um, it's a gratification that I've been judged. Right. If you're kind of a masochist, it's like I've been judged. I've been I've been I've been put in my place. And then on the, on the state side, it's like kind of like where you get to kind of let out your hate for uh all the bad things people have done to you, you know, like you, you get to judge someone physically for that. And then there's pleasure in both, you know, and these can kind of be dangerous things because um, imagine if you, if you, if you take this a little further, that could easily transfer into something like murder and the pleasure of actually murdering somebody. Um, So these things can kind of, I think they're, they're, they can be really dangerous to a person's psyche, especially if someone's like really completely buying into them and you can have this unnatural need for this kind of pleasure. And so some would argue, well, is this really unnatural? Like if you're a Christian, can you practice this, right? Um, these are hard questions to answer because we don't really have um, specifics in the Bible about how people should be um, having the kind of sex they should be having, right? So oftentimes you're like, well, well, then is it okay? And then you might try some of this stuff and feel guilty um, within the confines of your uh, marriage relationship. And, and you're going to have to navigate that yourself, you know what I mean? Because there's not a clear, you know, marriages is, marriages is honorable and all, and the bed is undefiled or undefilable, or it could also mean like um, the bed is undefiled, like don't, def- don't defile the bed, you know, keep, uh, keep, and not defiling means bringing in another person in that specific context. So now don't bring another person into you, into your marriage bed, but you know, because marriage is honorable and all meaning that however you consensually decide to interact with your spouse could be acceptable, could be acceptable. And the fact that, um, religion kind of like doesn't allow for, um, uh, some of this stuff, right? This is kind of, this is controversial stuff here. It's like, well, should Christians be participating in um, BDSM style sex? And it's like, well, this could be derived literally from sexual trauma and, 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 and you could be doing it in a way that's even more traumatizing to you um, where you desensitize yourself from um, God's intended design around pleasure. And, you could in turn be living out your religious life through the need um, to practice masochism or sadism. You could literally, because these, the, the reasoning behind these things are almost seem very much in, in tune with our religious nature. We do good, we get good. Reward systems, we do bad, we get punished, right? So oftentimes the masochist will have a, a need for sexual punishment so that they can find pleasure. And so that's kind of strange, wouldn't you say? Like you think about it, that's really strange that somebody uh, could um, religious, but at the same time, it's not entirely strange because we're humans and sex is a part of who we are, but we just, cause it's taboo and we don't talk about it. It actually makes sense that somebody could actually have that kind of desire, right? So it's not the same as needing just to be, to be uh, dominant or dominated. Like, that's not the same, 
you know, and I know this is kind of talking about this stuff kind of strange, but I think it's important to us understand like we got to be able to talk about this within the confines of religion because this is happening. This is uh, uh, this kind of stuff is does exist among us. And you can look at someone and they can be totally put together and smile and look great, handsome and wholesome. And um, on the low, they are dealing with this kind of stuff within the confines of church. And if they're dealing with this kind of stuff, who can they go to? They can. So there's a shame and that shame can lead to them eventually leaving because they don't feel good enough. And they and if they have like a, a childhood abuse, then they're prone to already not feeling good. And therefore, they will self-disqualify, self-destruct and self-sabotage anything they do. OK, now now. If you're non-religious and this is you have these kinds of things as, as as desires and wants and whatnot, I mean that's between you and yourself how you deal with them. Because I'm not going to sit here and say like there's a solution within Christianity for um, some of this stuff, and there is solutions from God about this stuff, but a lot of it is indirect, and a lot of research has to be done in in order for us to really find an answer on how um, you know. We should act sexually uh, with our partner in marriage under the confines of religion. And I have a lot of understanding about this because, you know, I, I went through a lot of childhood sexual abuse. Um, I haven't been pure myself. You know, I've, 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 I've slept around before marriage. So I have understandings about um, sexual activity, you know what I mean? And I deal with my own problems concerning this. And, and those problems are hard to deal with sometimes, you know what I mean? Like the, the pornography problem, the masturbation problem, uh, the not being married problem, the, the only being able to do sexual things within marriage and that being a value of mine. And then when you have that as a value and you betray it, the, self, um, the self-hate is only amplified from the childhood trauma. And then imagine putting this person in church and then them um, having to hold it all in because you don't want to talk about it because you kind of don't want to be held accountable for it in a way because it's not really anybody else. You, you're still going to make your choices. And so if you put yourself under an accountability, you're afraid that when you fail, you'll, you'll treat the accountability partner bad because you'll be angry at them for telling you something. Like, and, and sometimes that really happens, you know what I mean? People say, we want to be accountable. And then when it comes to actually being accountable, it doesn't really work that well. And, you know, the question, I guess, if we're looking back, the question is, is can you like this and be pure towards God? You know, that's a that's a that's an interesting thought right there, because fornication in the Greek, the Greek word for fornication, um, the ancient Koine Greek word is porne, which is all inclusive, meaning that any kind of sex that you do outside of marriage is considered a sin. Okay, it's a sin. So then any kind of sex. So then if I am um, lustful and I am masturbating and I'm not married and it's not about a spouse, then it is considered porne, fornication. So fornication is inclusive to adultery, to incest, to bestiality, to any kind of sexual activity. And it I, and I think if you really look at it, it. I think that it extends to masturbation. It's like, well, someone, should they masturbate if they're a Christian instead of having sex? And that's a hard thing to talk about. Nobody talks about that. It's like, well, can I? And, you know, if I'm a person that decides to live my life in entire, uh, entirely in, um, let's just say, where I don't get married, right? 
um, then am I to remain completely abstinent from pleasing myself, right? But then again, can you please yourself without being lustful? Well, not exactly sure that that's possible. You know, um, I remember in Bible school, um, this is kind of weird to say, but we did come up with a conversation and we were talking about this and it's like they, they, some, we're, some friends encourage something like strange. It's, they call it whitewalling, you know, where you, you try to achieve, you do master. This is a stuff, legalism, this is legalistic, by the way, because we're just trying to find a way around the rule, right? It's like we, we don't think about nothing, but we still try to achieve what we want to achieve with masturbation. And then it's like, but it's a white wall thought. It's like, well, you just look at a white wall and that's, and then you masturbate. And so it's like, well, is that, does that work? Is that a way around the rule? Like, you know, and the answer is, well, that's really, that's really like, if we're going to get that technical, right? It's like, well, then it, it kind of must be, it kind of must be wrong. It fits in the porne fornication conversation, right? And that's interesting. I think that that's just very interesting. So when we go back to the Bible, you know, and we see be fruitful and multiply, that's one of the first commands of God to, the, to Adam and Eve. It's like, well, so God does want them to have sex, right? And God is very present the same way that, that God is present when you do any other sin. God is present while you have sex, okay? And you might think, oh, well, that's, that's, that's weird. No, it's, it's God created you and sex isn't meant to be this distorted thing that you know the world has made it um where it's like super taboo and and all that stuff it was designed as a part of our, our way to procreate and um to have pleasure between one another in love you know it's not good for man to be alone that's what the bible says so that a man it's not good for him it's not there's 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 very rare cases where a man can actually be alone in, in, in mostly it's bad for a man, you know, some cases it might be good, but mostly it's bad. So then you have stories like, um, you know, like in Genesis 38, where you have the man who uh, spilled the seed. Um, and that's an interesting story too, because, you know, he gets punished by God for not impregnating his brother's wife. And, you know, um, his brother obviously is gone, dead. So he was supposed to take up the, the, the mantle of the family and get, you know, the girl pregnant and, and marry her as a command. And instead of getting her pregnant, he decides um, to pull out and he spilled the seed, meaning that he had an orgasm. And, it, and this, it, this is in the Bible, guys. So I'm not I'm not like I'm not totally amiss here for saying this specific story. And let me go um, to Genesis 38 real quick, because I do want to kind of quote it properly. And it's starting at verse I think we start at verse eight and um, it's and Judah said unto Onan, go into thy brother's wife and marry her and raise up seed to thy brother. And Onan knew that the seed should not be his. And it came to pass when he went unto his brother's wife that he spilled on the ground, lest he, he should give seed to his brother. And the thing which he did displeased the Lord, wherefore the Lord slew him. Then said Judah to Tamar, his daughter, remain a widow at thy father's house till uh, Shalah, my son, be grown, for he said, Let's preadventure he die also, and his brethren did, and Tamar went and dwelt in the father's house. So you kind of see here it's like 
people have used this scripture to say like, well, you shouldn't masturbate because then that's spilling the seed, right? And that's not what's being said here. This is just a specific time that God asked the man to do something and the man didn't do what God asked. So I don't think this can be used primarily as a, as a reason to not masturbate. But when talking about this is that, uh, and you even got science, right? This says the masturbation is healthy, it's good for you and things like that. And so you're talking about, okay, if you're, we're talking about biologically that people say that you shouldn't masturbate and then you have scientifically them saying you should, that can create some chaos in a person, you know what I mean? And then you don't really find anything clear about it in the Bible so you don't know what stance to take. And so therefore, like, you're not sure if your masturbation is a sin. Um, technically, under Jesus's words, even if you think, you know, um, about having uh, sex with someone that's not your wife, it's considered adultery. So therefore, it's like, obviously, in thought, like having lustful thoughts is sinful. And actually sleeping with someone that you're not married to is sinful, then it kind of entails that it might be wrong to masturbate, right? So, and you, we need to, we need to talk about this stuff. This, this needs to happen. And, um, and going back to the masochism and sadism, it's like, well, at what, at what point does someone think this is right? And at what point does someone think this is wrong? You know? Um, and then, people who may have proclivity for it where they're just feel like where they think that they have a proclivity, right? Cause sometimes when it comes to the sexual stuff, like it's a hard thing to navigate because you don't know why people de completely develop the desire for pleasure that they develop and how they like it, how they like the pleasure is very particular to each person. So you can't really regulate that entirely, right? There's not in a, a true biblical regulation of how somebody should have sex and it's only missionary and it's only this and so we we got to start talking about this stuff and that's just my that's just me right now what i'm doing is trying to bring this to light you know um it's it's just interesting and why I talk about this because if you want a higher quality of life you got to start asking the hard questions we have to begin to uh, confront if we're going to overcome anything uh, about sexual abuse, we're going to have to confront um, our issues, the things we don't want to confront, you know, um, and and face them. And, and as we face them, little by little, we become stronger and we become resistant to the effects that trauma has. And we become enlightened with God's word in life. And then we are able to be more uh, like Christ on this planet due to the transformation of our mind, right? It's not due to our own effort completely. Um, we integrate our effort with God through faith, but uh, it's not completely done through self-mastery. So we're not sitting here, and I think even Paul was against self-mastery. We're not here trying to self-master ourselves out of sin. It's, it would be considered work still. You know, it's, you did it, cool. Like if you, if you want to master and, 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 and not be transformed, but self-master, those are two different things, and people have to understand the difference. So going back to the thinking, so if you think crooked, you'll feel crooked, you'll act crooked. You, you think clean, you'll feel clean, you'll act clean. Like it's a very simple cycle of understanding. And then when we talk about people's words in actions, like I have to do this for myself. I have to see what I'm saying and then I have to see how I'm acting and I have to see what's true, what's 
truly true between all of it because all of it's true because even even a manipulation or a deception is true right it's not true in the sense that what is actually said is truth but it's happening it's actualized someone actually was deceptive right so it's it's truly happening so then you and if you can see the intention by some of the action and kind of measure it then you're able to effectively deal with it right so when i'm when i'm going through this conversation about trauma and healing right i've you guys heard that one it's like i started thinking about this cuz i i'm a victim of this myself you know as a child and um i have a plethora of negative experiences regarding sexual abuse sexual assault and all these kind of things and i and i realized it's like dang all my all my tendencies really match up to someone who's been traumatized, you know, especially in the category of, uh, of, of sex, you know? And so some of, some of these people like me, we can be dangerous and you'll never know it. We could be dangerous and you'll never know it because our need to be, to get validated will show that we are that we are very effective people that we have a high capacity of of doing behind us meaning we can do good and we can make a difference and and but still be very much traumatized because we've already learned how to sophisticate it in a sophisticated way to live and operate in the world while holding on to this dark secret about what really happened to us because we're not allowed to talk about this in detail it's considered oversharing right it's like to go in detail about your trauma, about uh, what happened with this person, that person, or whatever the situation was, is like very, it's very weird. It's a very weird feeling. So I've decided in my life, it's like, well, I've tried my best to, uh, when these conversations do come up, to have a purity about how I carry myself so that the intention is pure when having, because when you talk about sexual stuff, you can easily arouse um, other people, you know, other people can be aroused by sexual talk. And in that arousal, you can in turn create um, more fornication, which you don't want to do. So then it's like when you meet somebody who hasn't had uh, help with their sexual trauma and it's important that we we try to get them help. We try to encourage them to get help, to get to talk, to get to counseling, to get to therapy, to get some kind of um, because then they can easily be that maybe maybe let's just say it's a 17 year old and and he had a lot of sexual trauma and then he's feeling sexual in church in a church environment and so he begins to you know uh use his charisma that he does have and and his ability to be a little bit of a a chameleon within a church environment and have sex with multiple girls which which the parents, you know, once they find out or if it comes out in church, it's a debacle. It's a disaster, right? It's 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 this is what they pray to protect their children from stuff like this. So it's 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 a it's a personal experience. Yes, but it's also um, or I've been there. I've been I've been the person that's messed up like this, you know, and, and I've caused a lot of damage. So I have in myself like a remorse um for all the things that I've done wrong, you know, I, I, I realize that sometimes even myself, I go black and I don't mean black, like black out, but I go where I'm, I'm just not completely self-aware anymore. It's like I get triggered and then I'm not self-aware and then I'll, I'll, I'll act in a sexual way that is not, of course, 
uh, in line with what God has planned for me, you know. And then from a biblical side, it's like, well, well, why marriage? Well, you know, well, it's supposed to be what God offers is supposed to be better than what the world has. But when you're taught that what the world has, what's secular is more important um, and not your spiritual health, then it's easy to indulge yourself, you know. So um, it's like trading wood for gold. God's idea of marriage and his true intention for it is it's supposed to be the gold. And then this uh, licentious lifestyle of just kind of sleeping around with everybody is supposed to be wood. So then God changes that is that that corrosive wood is and this is just like an allegory that corrosive wood um it's corroding it's dying that's not the way to live in the world it is helping to accelerate you to death to your physical death So um going back to this now and this is all from a Christian perspective right so then then marriage being gold it's like, this is the height. This is supposed to be the height. So if you do this the way God has planned for you, then you'll end up happier and you'll be able to enjoy sex more doing it God's way, right? So, and if you wait um, and you don't traumatize yourself and, and, and connect yourself to people who um, in turn won't be there forever, um, they haven't made that promise to you, you're going to feel used, you know, and it can go both ways, but mostly oftentimes it's, it's, it is the men using the women, um, you know, because if we, if we go like to, um, I don't, I don't want to get into that, but we can get into that later. So I don't know if this is helpful, but hopefully this starts to open some eyes and doors about, um, how to deal with our, um, our sexual desires, you know, I, I, and, and how, um, Sexual abuse affects a person and how that person, when you incorporate religion into their life, how that might affect them as well. And then when you incorporate all of it together, um, it can really be a a a dark, ugly thing, you know, where a person is living in the filth of their abuse. They're repeating the the feelings They're They're, they're trying to create that high, you know. And it's unfortunate, but, you know, some sexual abuse even incites pleasure and say you're you're abused by an adult and you're a child and you have to deal with thoughts about like, did I like it? You know, imagine that. I, you know, and I know what that's like. That hurts. That's a hurtful thought inside and that can really damage somebody. Um, so here's the thing. This is uh, our time's about to be up. I'm going to continue this conversation soon. Um, again, I got most of my statistics from victimsofcrime.org. Um, I hope this is insightful and helpful. And yeah, I'll be posting it soon. Thank you, guys. Okay, and we are back. I just, uh, I can only record my podcast by the hour. So um, getting back into the sexual abuse, you know, like uh, I kind of want to break it down a little bit further, the actual abuse part, because um, the sexual abuse becomes sexual abuse when it's like, it's a violation of will where someone is infringing upon your natural rights. Um, we believe from a biblical perspective that people are individuals and they have sovereign rights. They're in charge of their own destiny um, because they have will, right? We have will. We believe in, in free will and free will means free speech and free speech means freeness of thought and freedom of thought means 
that we are individually sovereign. And we've seen this to actually be one of the most um, effective ways of, 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 of kind of telling people to live in the world. We're being sovereign. But the, with the idea, not the problem, the idea of, of sovereignty, though, is that the violation of the sovereignty becomes trauma because we set the standard as something, right? And then the deviation from the standard is kind of what would end up being the trauma. And so um, however we teach like kids and, and young adults, however we teach them con and what we teach them concerning sex will in turn be um, sometimes be their standard. You know, not everything we teach people or, or as teachers, as leaders, as, you know, as a former pastor, I used to be a pastor. So not everything we teach people uh, sticks with them. But if something about um, uh, sex that's taught in a positive way towards the ideals of, uh, of the Bible, um, that that could stick with somebody. And in turn, when they betray that, or when that's betrayed, whether they do it, um, whether they, you know, are, are, are betraying God themselves or they're being violated themselves, we're specifically focusing on the violation of will, right? And so the violation of will here seems to be um, what creates the trauma because we're taught we have sovereign, we have sovereignty of individual and we're individual, we're individually sovereign. So um, this is very much like how it works in America. So then definitely we're in such a place in the world where we can care about mental health. We can care. Like there's some cultures in history. Like think about it. History is barbaric where there's no, you, there's no, no one cares about your mental health in history. You know, it's not something it, people are just being slaughtered left and right throughout history. It's a bloody past we have um, as far as history goes. Right. So the fact that we've made it here is such an incredible thing, I think. Um, we're a lot better off than we think, but obviously there is a, a lot in the world because we're so better off that people um, are finding ways, ways to misuse their individual sovereignty. And, and, and part of that is that, you know, there's people out there who are malevolent, who are evil, who, who are pleasure seeking, and they've dived into the darkness of their life, of, of what's presented itself to them, whatever kind of darkness has presented itself to them, they've dived into it and have actually actualized their darkness the darkness by abusing somebody sexually for their own pleasure and how someone justifies that i don't know i don't know how someone does that and live and continues to live a normal life and i don't think that person does you know and and i don't think they live a normal life i think they live a very dark secret hidden life but think about that that's difficult to deal with like like it's almost like you're set up for no for no closure at all, because for for you to get closure in a sense would be like, where's the justice for, the, you know, for me? Why don't I matter? Why doesn't my and then you have parents that once they find out, they kind of sweep it under the rug or if it's a family member, they try to sweep it under the rug. You have this stuff that happens, you know what I mean? And then what does that do that 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 devalidates the person? It makes them feel like what they went through is just a part of life and it wasn't really something that bad, you know? And we try, because it happens so fast, we try to minimize it. But at the end of the day, it's bad. It's dangerous. It hurts people because these hurt people will in turn hurt other people. If that makes sense. 
one in five children who are boys, no, one in five children who are girls experience it. One in 20 of boys experience sexual assault, abuse. One in 20 boys, every 20 little boys you see, every one in every five little girls you see, you just look around, they've experienced it. And that's a sad statistic, right? That that should actually kind of hurt the heart to think about it. It's like, it's like my siblings, I have, you know, I'm, I'm, there's, well, hold on, I don't know how many siblings I have. It's like six of us total. So I'm one of, I'm one of six, you know, and so that, like, think about that within my family, I'm one. And so I'm the one, I'm the one, right? Um, and because there's six of us, there could be two. Like, that's the interesting thing. It's like, you just add a little bit more, more people to the equation. And it's like, well, like, there could be two of eight, right? So this is like, you, you, you go to a church and, and, you, and, and you walk into a church and you see all the kids and you're like, one in 20 of those boys has experienced it. One in five of those girls has experienced it. That's a disaster. And we don't know and we're not aware and we're not asking questions. We're not making this kind of topic um, where we're able to talk about it. I think the more we talk about it, the more healing that happens because we're able to organize how we should deal with these things versus um, just kind of sweeping it under the rug and hoping that this person will figure it out themselves because the people helping them don't really know how to deal with it because maybe they've never been through it or they haven't been through through it to the extreme that that person has. And so I've experienced people not knowing how to deal with this within me. And then it's like, or I've, I've had experiences where I talk about it and then it turns into me actually having sex. And I, I say that with, with, with remorse attached because I saw within myself that me sharing this with somebody was me now being vulnerable and that person was in turn vulnerable and felt for me. And then that feeling for me turned into um, a sexual attraction. And then that attraction turned into, uh, you know, fornication. So in a sense, right. And, and I hate to use the word fornication sometimes just because it's so ancient and, and you know, it kind of seems super harsh, but there's no way to sugarcoat what it is, right? I'm not going to try to sugarcoat it. So fornication is fornication. It's the Greek word porne. Um, it's where we get the word uh, pornography from. Um, so you understand that, that, that God actually does acknowledge it, but just because of how it was translated, it's not the most um, understandable thing just by first glance. You actually have to do your research and study and, and learn, you know? So... Um, and then you, one of these things that I, I, I kind of brushed over earlier was the willingness to compromise relationships. It's like, um, you don't understand me, so I'm willing to just, because you don't understand my pain and where I'm coming from, I'm willing to just cut people off, you know? You'll see that this is a tendency of people uh, who have sexual abuse because it's almost like you are overstepping your boundaries to them and so they'll, they'll cut you off um, because they've been taught to keep this so private that if it's violated and they've become a conservative person because of it and then you violate that then easily if they're conservative with you because not like for me i can be conservative with certain people and if i'm conservative and they cross the line i could have the same conversation with someone else and it'd be fine but with this particular person i can cut them off you know um the the inability to love because of self-hate like that's also really dangerous you know like you think about 
It's like, how do you, how do you commit your entire life to somebody and you don't even understand what you've been through? You don't even understand yourself. Like, so then when you try to commit, you don't really know what is going to be required of you, you know? And when those commitments come to the forefront of the table and you're talking about them and trying to see them through, there's a part of a person who's been abused that might have a tendency towards running from it. Because it's like, because now if I'm in this relationship and I get married, I have to deal with this now, you know, versus just like sneakily having sex here and there and uh, pornography and masturbation, right? And all these things. It's like, it's easy to walk out. And the self-hate will easily destroy you, you know, make you, it can make you like unfunctional, like dysfunctional and then you're not functioning at all sometimes you know and because you've been through so much you develop this ability to understand people that's kind of uncanny and almost seems a little unnatural in the way that like you're able to read people very well because you've been in the darkest places of life you're able to see dark people you get what i'm saying that that's and if you've done enough work you're able to see them even more clear than probably even how they see themselves sometimes so you know, and then you find people looking for sexual acceptance. It's like, well, uh, you have sex with different people and then, you know, you want them to validate that you're, you're good, you're worth it, you're, 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 and you're not married. So you're constantly using drug, uh, sex as a drug. And that's possible too from trauma to use sex as a drug, to use forms of sex, uh, forms of, of identifiable different kinds of sex. Like some people would call them fetishes, right? Um, and those kind of end up fulfilling you in some kind of way, but it's still the empty void of it. It's like sex isn't everything, guys. Like, I think women understand this better than men, but that sex is not everything. Sex is not life. Like, life isn't just sex, you know? You might enjoy it here and there, but at the same time, you're gonna, it's not fulfilling. It's not meant to fulfill you. It's a meant to be, it's just like the way you, when you eat, it's like it's a, it's a part of what you what you need and, and want as in, in the physical body, but it's not everything. And I think a lot of people think that, yeah, like sex is the highest. I'm going to get married. And it's like and, and, and we get so driven by pleasure in our animal instinct that I think it's 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 so hard. to It's so hard to deal with this in church, in a church environment. And the church doesn't make it any easier as well. Because it's like nobody wants to open the door of talking about sex because then it might make people have more sex. That's the fear. And if it makes people have more sex, it might make people have more sex that are not married. But because we, we cloak it, it actually creates a sensualized sensation of that when it is talked about, it feels wrong, but it also feels right. And if you've ever had any kind of sexual encounters, you understand what I'm talking about. Um, if you haven't, I'm sorry, but at the same time, it's something that I believe to be true and have experienced myself. So, you know, these kind of people don't want to ask for help. No, they don't. If you, you literally, so like, here, here's the thing. These kind of people will literally 
only accept help if it's almost like forced upon them, meaning that like you surprised them or you just did it. If you ask them, they're going to say no, you know. So it's like, but if you just do something good for them that's reasonable and it doesn't seem like you're overselling yourself and you do something for them, then it's like, it's life-changing, it's impacting, it's powerful to that person, right? So, and you can imagine this stuff, it would want to make you numb, you know? Being raped, being assaulted might make you want to forget. And if you can't forget, then it's easy to go to drugs. It's easy to go to alcohol. It's easy to go to uh, cocaine. And, and it's even uh, easier to, to, to contemplate the thoughts of suicide because you're thinking like, why do I, should I be alive if I'm not worth anything? You know? And it's traumatizing. It really is. It really is. And we don't talk about this stuff. And then you have people that never talk about the stuff that get in relationships and get married. And then um, when... To, when a couple isn't into the same kind of things or they, they have no ability to communicate, then they're going to have sex problems in their marriage and then their marriage is going to self-destruct because a one person has a proclivity, let's just say, to be dominant and the other person has a proclivity to also be dominant. And then you're rubbing two dominant forces together and and the person who's who's been sexually abused is dominant because they're overcompensating for the fact that they were vulnerable once in their life so they try to project a higher to a higher a degree of confidence, but that's just a projection. And that projection will then cause problems in the relationship because it's not who that person really is. So I think we need to make some of this stuff a structure of thinking um, where we help people with religious trauma, with trauma um, from their from their childhood and it's integrated itself with religious structures and concepts. Um, and it fuses them in a way where it becomes a very dysfunctional way of showing up in the world. But nonetheless, it's showing up. So I've learned to do that where I learned to show up dysfunctionally. Where I was a Bible teacher for 11 years, but I still learned to show up. I showed up dysfunctionally. And at some point, it wore on me. you know. And then I ended up you know, walking away from the whole thing. But... But there was answers, but I wasn't smart enough or wise enough yet to know the answers. But, you know, now I'm here. So, I mean, I'm not going to complain. But at the same time, you know, I just want to encourage people like, you know, to start finding ways to deal with this. Uh, because it will it will affect your relationships. It will affect your money in some way. It affects everything. It's, it's just it's, it's the one thing. It's the one thing in life that. Nobody talks about, everybody has problems with, everyone has issues around. And, um, and then you even have the people that are abused, that their issues are just magnified, multiplied, and are, are just, it's just dangerous, you know, it's hurtful. So I encourage you guys to start, if, you know, if you're a believer, to start praying about um, the people around you and, and, and how you can better interact with people who've been abused that you know of. And then um, also how we can be better listeners to tell when someone is abused. That way we can show up for them better. You know what I mean? And we don't run into this. You're, you're helping these people. If you're someone who hasn't been abused and you're helping these people, you got to understand it's the consistency. It's the, it's not actually what you do in one moment. It's, it's the consistency of constantly offering help constantly. And, and nobody wants to do this anymore. We live in a society where like, you know, like nobody really wants to know how you're really doing. And, 
that's just more, I would say it's kind of creeped its way into the church because we want to mind our own business because we have our own problems and our own suffering, not knowing that one of the most fulfilling things you can do is help other people. So um, hopefully I'll be able to make some breakthroughs in these conversations and talk about this from a deeper level, um, even a deeper level in the Bible. And I kind of want to go through scriptures um, the next time around. But for now, I'm going to just kind of leave this here. Uh, tune in. Um, you can let me know what you think. Uh, my email is A-N-G-E-L-K-F-P at MSN.com. Again, Angel. Um, K as in King, F as in Family, P as in Partner at MSN.com. Send me an email uh, if you have any questions or thoughts or, or contributions to this conversation. I would love to hear from you and um, take care. All right, guys. Thank you.